pick up in our study. Lord, we're thankful that Christ is the solid rock on which we stand. We know that all the religions of the world offer nothing but sinking sand. It cannot, they cannot save, they cannot sanctify, they cannot deliver us from the wrath of God because God alone can save us. God alone can devise a method so wise and so gracious so as to bring us out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And we're thankful that you've done that, that you have devised such a plan. And that plan is Christ. Christ is the plan. And what He has accomplished on our behalf is the basis on which we are saved so that it brings glory to none but you. And we're thankful for that. We desire that this message be proclaimed to the world, that all would hear this glorious message. We think about those in our culture who are not standing on the solid rock of Christ but are sinking in the sinking sand of the world and of its religious uh, lies and errors. And we pray, Lord, that You would be gracious, that You would use our church to reach this place for Christ. And we pray that Christ would be magnified through our efforts. To which end we pray. Amen. Alright, this morning we pick up uh, where we left off in our study of sanctification and the spiritual disciplines. And we are currently on the fourth discipline. We are talking about the topic of evangelism. Evangelism. And I told you that this is going to come in two parts. Okay, Two parts to this series on evangelism. Part one is the basics of evangelism. The who, what, when, where, why, how of evangelism. And part two, which is where we're at now, uh, is what I've entitled an outline for evangelism. The essential components of a gospel message. Uh, so in the first lesson, we talked about the basics, the who, what, when, where, why, how. And we considered, we concluded that who is to do evangelism? Every Christian, right? Every believer. We're all called to do evangelism. How do we do it? Where do we do it? When do we do it? All the time, everywhere, right? And evangelism isn't our personal testimony. It isn't living a godly life. What is evangelism? Preaching the gospel, right? Declaring the evangel, the good news. Okay? Telling the gospel. Amen. Telling people the good news. So now we've come to the second part, and that is the essential components of a gospel message, an outline for evangelism. And the question that this lesson is really answering is, what do we say to an unbeliever in an evangelistic encounter? What are the truths that we need to communicate to the unbeliever if we are to effectively proclaim the gospel to him? And I've given you kind of a five-point outline. Does anybody remember the five points? The five-point outline on evangelism. Some of my note-takers aren't here today or aren't ready. But five points that we need to communicate to the non-believer. Knowledge of God. Okay. Knowledge of man. Yep. Christ. Yep. The response. That's right. So five simple points, okay? If you want to effectively communicate the gospel, you need to convey a clear understanding of the knowledge of God. We need the unbeliever to come to understand the nature of his own the condition of his own heart, right? His own nature. He needs to come to understand the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And he needs to know what he needs to do in response to the gospel. And then you want to finish that presentation with some promises and some warnings. Okay? So we start with God. Uh, all saving knowledge begins with the knowledge of God. Calvin said all wisdom lies in that. A, tr- knowledge, a true knowledge of God and a true knowledge of ourselves. That's where it all begins. And so when we talk about God, what were some of the key attributes of God that we need to communicate? 
What are we telling the unbeliever about God? God is holy, right? God is holy. God is just, right? What does that mean? If He's just, what is He going to do? He's going to send people to hell. He's going to punish people. Just judges punish criminals, right? They don't pardon them. They punish them. And God is love. That's true. God is love. And if God is love, I think a necessary truth that flows out of that is that God is hate. Because if you love something, you hate that which contradicts what you love, right? If I love marriage, I hate divorce. I love life. I hate murder. I love God. I hate unrighteousness, right? If God loves that which is good, He hates that which is evil, right? So God is love, which means God is also a God of hate, right? So we need to talk about God, but we also need to talk about man. And what is it about the sinner that we need to tell him? What does he need to know about himself? He needs to recognize his sin, right? He needs to come to understand he's a sinner. Because he's not going to go to the doctor until he understands he's sick, right? He's probably like me and he doesn't go to his yearly checkup. So he only goes to the doctor when he's sick. And he's not going to go to the Savior unless he understands that he's a wretched sinner. And you see, again, in our culture, the idea is the, uh, the life enhancement gospel. Man, I really hope my neighbor hits rock bottom so I can really share the gospel with him. And then he might want to come to Jesus when he has nothing left. And that makes sense. If the gospel is God will fix your life, God will make your marriage better, God will make you happy, and someone says, well, I've already got a good marriage, my life's pretty good, I'm already happy, I don't need your Jesus. Right? Then we need them at rock bottom. If that's the gospel we're presenting. But if we're presenting the biblical gospel that says, no, you're a sinner, you're guilty before God, and you're under His wrath at this very moment, and your only hope to escape that wrath is faith in Christ, then the gospel is applicable to everybody in all situations because everybody has the same problem. They're under the wrath of God. So we need to tell the sinner about his sin, right? And we talked about original sin. The problem is not merely our isolated individual acts, right? It's more than that. It's the heart. From birth, we're inclined to do evil. We talked about our actual transgressions, violating the law of God. That's what sin is. We talked about the just penalty. What is that? The wages of sin is death, even eternal death. And we talked about man's inability. Man does not have the ability to please God, to justify himself, or to keep the law. So we need a Savior. And that brings us to point three in the outline. It's been bad news so far, right? We could summarize the first two points like this. God is good, you are not. That's the bad news. Uh, In fact, Paul Washer says, that man's greatest problem is this, God is good. That's man's greatest problem. What is the worst news that a criminal can hear before he walks into the courtroom? He's about to face a good judge. Because if he's really a guilty criminal, he's in trouble. right? He's hoping for a perverted judge. But if he gets a good judge, he's in trouble. That's the way it is for the sinner. God is good. That's the problem. But now we get to the good news. And the good news is Christ. Jesus is the Gospel. He is the good news. Christ. And last week I told you that as we consider Christ, we're going to do it under two headings. Okay? His person and His work. The person of Christ and the work of Christ. That's what we need to communicate to the unbeliever. The first point deals with who Jesus is. The second point deals with what He has done. Who He is and what He has done. And we looked at His person last week. And we considered the reality that Christ possesses two distinct natures. Right? Jesus is fully blank and fully blank. He's fully what? 
full of God? Fully man, right? Fully God, fully man. We call this the hypostatic union. That in the one person of Jesus, two distinct natures are there without any dilution of the other nature, right? There's no mixture, no, no, uh, there's no eradication of the nature. It's not 50% man, 50% God. He possesses a full divine nature and a true human nature all together in one person. Fully God, fully man. And so we talk about Christ, fully God, fully man. We talked about how He had to be both to be a sufficient Savior, right? And that's because to pay the infinite debt, He has to be God. Only God has that worth. Because think about it. How can one person hanging on a cross for six hours pay an infinite penalty for sin for all of His people all over the whole world for all time? Because He has more worth than all of them. He's infinite in His worth. But he has to be man because only a man can die for a man's sins, right? To be a perfect substitute, he had to be fully God, fully man. Again, like Spurgeon said, we need a ladder that reaches from the bottom to the top. It wouldn't do any good if it goes to the bottom and doesn't reach all the way to the top. We need a Savior who's both God and man. We need heaven and earth combined if we're going to be reconciled to God. And thus Jesus is fully God, fully man. But now this morning we transition to the second point under Christ, and that is His work. His work. What is it that Jesus has done to save sinners? What could we include in the work of Christ? Say that again. Death. Death. So He died for sinners. That's the big one, right? Everybody gets that. Jesus died for sinners. Is that it? Is that where the work ends? Jesus died for sinners. Anything else? Resurrection. He rose again. This proves that the death was sufficient. Amen. And, and the women never would have moved the stone if it hadn't been moved. That's right. No way, so no how. Nobody would have known. I don't think there were any bodybuilding women in the first century. They probably weren't moving those stones. That's true. So, Jesus rose. What good is the death of Christ without the resurrection of Christ? Right? Then he's just another man. Many criminals died on the cross, but only one rose from the dead, namely Jesus. So, Jesus died. Jesus rose. What else might we include under, under the work of Christ? And think more than just salvation. I mean, just the totality of the work of Jesus as the God-man. What does He do? Perfection. A sinless life, right? He not only died for us, He lived for us. He's not only our substitute in death, He's our substitute in life. So He not only pays the penalty for sin, but He procures for us perfect righteousness so that we stand perfect before God, right? So Jesus is a dying Savior, a living Savior, a resurrected Savior. What are some other things we might include under the work of Christ? Is there anything else? So He's a preacher. God had one Son and He made Him a preacher, right? Jesus was a preacher. But there's one more thing. What is going to happen? What's the next thing we're waiting on? He's coming again. And what is He going to do when He comes? He's going to judge the world, isn't He? He's going to judge the world. So let's consider some of these in order here. So first of all, as we talk about the work of Christ, number one, Jesus' perfect life satisfied the moral demands of God's law. Jesus' perfect life satisfied the moral demands of the law. Again, what is the standard of the law? How, how good do we have to be? Is, is just one sin? That's all. If we just commit one sin, we're good? Get a mulligan? No, right? Got to be perfect. 
But Jesus was perfect. Go to Matthew 3. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We have here the report of Jesus' baptism starting in verse 13. Matthew 3 verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John gets it, right? John's like, wait a minute, you're the Lamb of God, you're sinless, you're the Messiah. Why in the world do I need to baptize you? And what does baptism symbolize? Say that again. It's an example or a public profession of faith, that's true. What else? What else does what does the water in baptism symbolize? Washed, cleansed from what? Sin. So what in the world is Jesus being baptized for if it's a symbol of cleansing from sin? John's like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. But verse 15, Jesus gives us his justification. But Jesus answering said to them, said to him, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? That's a, that's a crazy statement. We don't use language like that, right? What does it mean? So Jesus' baptism was for the purpose of fulfilling all righteousness. What does that mean? Someone want to have a crack at it? So think about it. Jesus has to be a perfect Savior. There is a plan that the Father has laid out for Him, one that requires perfect obedience if He is to be the sufficient Savior, and if He is to work out for us a perfect righteousness, and baptism was one of many acts that Jesus would have to fulfill if He was to carry out all righteousness. So Jesus was baptized even for us. We can't even be baptized right. Jesus was baptized for us. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. So we're considering this idea that Jesus not only died for us, that's what we all understand. Is in a Christian culture, we hear that often. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. But when's the last time someone said, Jesus lived for me? Jesus lived righteously on my behalf. And that's an important aspect of the Gospel. In fact, if you lose that, you lose the Gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. This is uh, uh, Paul's summary of the Gospel right here in one verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him, that is, God the Father, made God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's glorious, isn't it? We call that the great exchange. Our sin, our legal guilt, laid on Christ, so God treats Jesus like He lived our lives. And then Jesus' sinlessness, His righteousness, laid upon us, so that God turns right around and treats us like we live Jesus' life. That's amazing, isn't it? We are legally given the status of Jesus, justified, righteous, innocent, because He lived perfectly for us. So Jesus not only died for sinners, but He lived for sinners. And His life satisfied the moral demands of the law of God. And that's what we want to communicate to the sinner. We want to communicate that He's guilty, that He's unrighteous, that God demands absolute perfection, his justice will not allow him to overlook sin. And the only way for him to be right with God is to be perfect. 
Right? I told you before, you want to shock an unbeliever, tell them you have to be perfect to get to heaven. The Bible says that. Three places at least. Matthew 5.48, you must be perfect. Galatians 3, cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by everything written in the law. James 2.10, if you break one law, you stumble at every point. Right? You've got to be perfect. And then you tell the unbeliever, but in Christ you can be perfect. You don't need purgatory. You don't need to be purged for your sins in purgatory. You don't need to contribute your works and your righteousness that, that is nothing but filthy rags to God. You simply need the perfection of Jesus. And that is sufficient. That is sufficient. So Jesus' life satisfied the moral demands of the law. But secondly, His perfect death satisfied what we could call the penal demand of the law. The penal demand of the law. That means the penalty. And again, what's the penalty? Death. Jesus died our death. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. It's important that we understand and clearly communicate the significance of Christ's death. The significance of the atonement. Because again, we, we hear a cliche like this often. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for my sins. But do we really understand what that means? When I was growing up in a traditional, typical Southern Baptist church, uh, Bible-believing home, uh, I, I prayed a prayer when I was seven. I didn't want to go to hell. Who does, right? I want my get-out-of-hell-free card. So I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart. But my understanding of the death of Christ was this. Jesus died to show me He loved me. That's why He died. It was really kind of His last pathetic attempt to win me over. Him just wooing me to Him. Look at Jesus. He's there dying to show me He loves me, and if I don't come to Him, He's going to weep eternal tears of joy or of sadness forever. As if we're that important. As if He needs us. But that's not what the death of Christ is about. Now, to be sure, it is the greatest expression of love ever. But not because it was made just to show love, but because of the point of the atonement, the point, the point for which, the reason for which He died. Go to Romans three. Look at starting in verse twenty-one. Romans 3.21 But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God... There's that idea again of righteousness. The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, Paul has spent the first three chapters or so talking about the bad news of condemnation from the law, and now he says, but now. Okay, I've given you enough bad news. I've buried you to the point where nothing is left but your nose. And now let me give you some good news. But now, apart from the law, apart from our futile attempts to keep the law, there is a way for you to be right with God. There's a way for you to be right with God. Verse 22, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice that. This right standing with God is on the basis of the righteousness of God. Because who is the only one who has a righteousness that meets God's standard? Who's the... Jesus, right? God. If we're to be right with God, we need the righteousness of God. That's the only way. Because our righteousness will never be enough. So even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, that's how you receive it, for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have the same problem, all have the same provision. The work of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. But now we get into the, to the other side of it. So the righteousness aspect deals with Jesus' life. Okay? We call this His active obedience. His active obedience. His active obedience is a reference to His obedience to the moral law of God. 
But the other side of it is what we call His passive obedience. His passive obedience. What do you think His passive obedience refers to? His active obedience is His obedience to the law. What is His passive obedience? Mm, not exactly. It, it does involve obedience to the Father, but what is exactly is the passive obedience of Christ? His death. His what? His death. His death. Because He didn't object. Right, he passively gives himself up. Exactly. So we are saved, get this, we are saved by the obedience of Christ. Okay? By his active obedience and keeping the law and his passive obedience and giving himself up to die. So now we get to that point. Verse 24. So all of sin, we're all guilty, but being justified. What does it mean to be justified? Crimes wiped away, right? The word has the idea of judicial acquittal. You're legally declared innocent, not guilty. You're guilty, but you can be declared not guilty. That's the good news, isn't it? Being justified, declared not guilty, as a gift by His grace, you can't earn it, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What does it mean? What does redemption mean? To buy back, right? To release by the payment of a ransom. Jesus paid the penalty to free us from sin and its consequences. That's the good news. So salvation's free for you and me, but it costs God His own Son. It costs Christ His own life. So it doesn't come completely free. It is for us, but not for God. So we're justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now notice verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly. Okay, Jesus didn't die in a corner. Right? He didn't die secretly. He died publicly on the hill of Golgotha for everyone to see. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood. Now there's your five dollar word. What in the world does propitiation mean? We don't use that word, right? We go to the refrigerator and say, man, that sandwich really propitiated me. What does the word propitiation mean? Anybody know? Satisfy, right? The word hilasterion, it means to appease, to placate, to turn away. In other words, Jesus did not just die as a martyr. right? He's not just a, a, dying for righteous causes. He did not die as a mere example of love. He died as a substitute, a bleeding substitute, who bore the wrath of God for sin and satisfied God's justice. Okay? The illustration that I find most helpful for this is as follows. Imagine you're in a courtroom and you're guilty of heinous crimes. The fine is set at a million dollars. And either you pay the million dollars or you go to prison until you can. Right? And none of us can pay the million dollars. If you can, see me after service. I want to talk with you. So you can't pay the million dollar fine. You're about to go to prison. But right before they take you out of the courtroom, a man walks in and says, Your Honor, I love this person. I've sold everything off my back. I'm actually the one he offended in this law, lawless act. But I've sold everything off my back. Here's a million dollars. I'm going to pay the fine. There you go. Justice satisfied, fine, paid, criminal free to go. It wouldn't work if the criminal just said, you know, Your Honor, I'm really sorry. I probably shouldn't have done that. I won't do it again. Or, you know, Your Honor, I'm sincere. I repent. doesn't matter. You're guilty, right? Your Honor, I'm a good person. My good outweighs my bad. That's irrelevant. You've deviated from the law. You're guilty. The only thing that's going to work is that the fine is paid. If justice is satisfied. Jesus has done that. Every sin will be justly punished. Either it will be punished in the sinner in hell or by the Savior on the cross. But every sin will be punished. 
So it's not that God is merciful to us at the expense of His justice, right? God saves us in a manner that is just and merciful. Both of His perfections, His justice and His mercy, are reconciled in the cross where Jesus bears the wrath of God for us. So, God, back to verse 25, displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, and this was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. When did God pass over sins previously committed? What's He talking about there? Think of the Old Testament. Abraham. Abraham is a friend of God. Abraham, Genesis 15.6, believed God and God declared him righteous. But Abraham's a liar. Abraham had sexual sin with his slave Hagar. I mean, this isn't a righteous man. How, how did God forgive Abraham? There was no sufficient sacrifice in Abraham's day, was there? Did the lambs and bulls and goats take away Abraham's sin? So God was just simply passing over his sin. Why? On the basis that Jesus would come and appease and demonstrate the justice of God. The cross, the idea today is the cross shows us how much we are worthy of God's love. In reality, the cross shows us how worthless we are, that it takes the death of God's Son to save us. We're not saved because of us. We're saved because God is gracious, because Jesus is sufficient. The cross is not about us, it's about the glory of God manifested in the Son of God. So, this was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. Verse 26, For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Glory. This is a just gospel. God is not a perverted judge just letting criminals go. He is a righteous judge who punishes every sin. And yet in His infinite wisdom, that plan entails liberating and acquitting sinners through the righteousness of Jesus. And now, we have to consider this then. On the cross, when Jesus died, who is it that really crushed Him? Who killed Him? Who is it that crushed Jesus? Was it the Romans? The Romans did carry out the executor. Say that again. Part of it was us. Okay, our sin is the reason for which He died. Okay? That's true. There's an old song called Who Nailed Him There? There's a sense in which my sin was the reason. The Romans carried out the execution. I mean, they're definitely guilty. Who handed Jesus over to the Romans? Jews. Jews, His own people. So they're guilty. right? They're going to look upon Him whom they pierce. But in reality, who is it that crushed Jesus? What do you think? God. God. Isaiah 53.10 It pleased the Lord to crush Him. We need to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, God was slaughtering His Son. God was pouring out fierce indignation and wrath upon His Son so that we could be free. That's what it calls. God is not one to be trifled with. When His justice is aroused, His enemies must be consumed. And for God to justify us, and be just in doing so. It took the slaughtering of the innocent Son of God as our substitute. That's what it took, right? So the sinner needs to understand that we're not saying, you're worth so much, you need a happy life, Jesus died to show you He loves you. That's a false gospel. That is the, that's why when I grew up, I didn't have any desire to follow Jesus. 
this puny little pathetic Savior trying to show me He loved me wasn't worthy of me to follow. But the biblical Jesus, who is a wrath-bearing substitute, a resurrected victorious conqueror, who demands that I come after Him, that's a Savior worth following. And we need to make sure that when we're preaching the Gospel, we're preaching a Savior worth following. A Gospel worth believing. And that's the Gospel of Jesus. So His perfect life satisfied the law. His perfect death satisfied God's wrath, you could say. But then thirdly, His resurrection confirms His deity. Right? If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, what could we conclude? What are some of the things we could conclude had Jesus not been resurrected? Would we have any reason to believe in Him? No. 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. We're the most pitied of all because we're people who are laying down our life, denying our worldly lusts, sacrificing our lives for a Savior who didn't even rise from the dead. What idiots would we be? Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if Christ has been raised, then we can believe everything He said. If a man says he's God, if a man tells us that he's dying to save us and then he comes back to life as he said he would, then you better believe Jesus did that, right? Go to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Romans 1, verse... Go to verse 1. We'll start at verse 1. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, here's God's gospel, which He promised beforehand through His prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son. The gospel is about the Son. The gospel is about Jesus. And now Paul kind of explains Jesus. Who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Okay, According to His human nature, Jesus is a son of David. Jesus is a human being. Verse 4 who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus, the man, is also Jesus, the true God. And the resurrection confirms that He is the Son of God. When God resurrects Jesus, it is God's public declaration to the world that Jesus is the Son of God. And of course, just as His death, so His resurrection didn't happen in a corner, right? It wasn't a private resurrection. He appeared to up to 500 brethren at once, many of whom wrote eyewitness accounts and died because they would not deny that they had seen the risen Jesus. And you can't forget about the fact that the Romans and the Jews, if they wanted to put an end to Christianity in the first century, you know all they had to do? Take the dead body of Jesus, parade it in the streets, and say, see, their Savior's dead. They couldn't do that. They kill a guy, and the sect that he started grew faster after he died than it did before he died. How do you account for that? You can't. His disciples are cowards running before He dies. And then after He dies, they stand and say, we must obey God rather than that. We cannot stop proclaiming what we've seen in her. There's only one way to account for that. Jesus was ready. And that resurrection proves that He is God. But there's another thing that the resurrection proves. And Carol, you hit on it earlier. What else does the resurrection prove? What does it prove about the death of Christ? Sufficient, right? Go to chapter 4. Romans 4. Can you tell which my favorite book is? The book of Romans. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. I go to verse 24. 
But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, that is righteousness, as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. In other words, the resurrection of Christ was for the purpose of solidifying our justification, confirming it, validating it. The resurrection demonstrates the sufficiency of the atonement, that Jesus' death was enough to save us. We don't need purgatory. We don't need our own works. We don't need religiosity. Of course, religion comes with being a Christian. You go to church, you worship God, and so on. But those things don't contribute to our justification. Christ alone, by His righteousness, does. He is enough. What did He cry out on the cross? It is finished, right? To Telestai, paid in full. And the resurrection proves that to be the case. All right, before we move on, are there any thoughts or comments or questions on what we've talked about so far? So a sinless life satisfied the law. His perfect death satisfied His wrath. His resurrection confirms His deity and the sufficiency of His atonement. Number four, His exaltation confirms His Lordship. His exaltation confirms His Lordship. What happened after Jesus died? He rose. What happened after He rose? He visited His disciples. He visited His disciples for 40 days? Then what? He ascended on high. Where? Or from the Mount of Olives, yeah. But to where? Heaven at the right hand of God. What does that mean? The right hand of God. If you're at the right hand of the King, where are you? You're the, you have the highest position in the universe. You are the right-hand man of the King. Jesus is on the highest throne. In fact, He said, I sat down on My Father's throne in Revelation. That is to say, Jesus is Lord of all. Go to Acts chapter 2. Can you tell what my second favorite book is? Acts chapter 2. Do you think it's important to preach about the Lordship of Christ in our evangelistic conversations? There are some people, uh, we call them hyper-dispensationalists, if you will, who say that we don't need to even say anything about the Lordship of Jesus in our conversation. Just tell them that Jesus died to save them and all they need to do is accept Jesus. That's not the Gospel. All throughout the Scriptures, when the apostles are proclaiming the Gospel, the Lordship of Christ is a central aspect of the message. Acts 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth that which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but He Himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here's the conclusion. Therefore, this is Peter on the day of Pentecost. Notice he's not doing quote-unquote friendship evangelism. He's not in Starbucks with the skinny jeans trying to build relationships. He's standing up publicly before a crowd of thousands of people and he raises his voice and says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you've crucified both Lord and Christ. He's Lord. Paul declares Jesus as Lord. We're not telling the unbeliever, guys, you know what, you should at least consider Jesus. Try Jesus. We're telling them Jesus is Lord. And either you bow to Him now or He'll crush you in the end. But He is Lord. That's what we're telling them. Think about Revelation. Jesus comes on a white steed and dipped in the blood of His enemies. That's the Jesus of the Bible. 
We're not talking about this namby-pamby, fuddy-duddy, friends-with-everybody Jesus of our culture. We're talking about the biblical Jesus who, according to Psalm 2, dashes His enemies to pieces. Revelation says He treads the winepress of the wrath of God. In fact, the unbeliever needs to realize as he's spewing out blasphemous words against Christ, the very Christ he's blaspheming is the one who's upholding it. The only reason he can even blaspheme the Christ he's blaspheming is because that Christ is giving him breath and grace in his life. Jesus is Lord. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The premise of the sermon is simply this. It is as if the sinner is hanging over the pits of hell, but by a little spider web. And in the breaking of the web, there's nothing to catch him. He drops into the fire. And so it is for the sinner. He's hanging over hell. Right now, if you're not in Christ, you are hanging over hell. The only thing holding you out of hell is the spider web of God's grace. Him upholding you. The only reason your heart hasn't stopped yet, the only reason you didn't fall into hell last night is because of God's grace. But friends, sooner than later, it's going to come to an end. The common grace of God runs out, and the only thing that will catch you on that day is the saving grace of God displayed in Christ. That's it. And we need to tell the sinner that. We don't, we're not here begging people. There's a, there's a real aspect in which we plead with people. But we're telling people, God has made Jesus Lord. Have you ever heard of this expression, make Jesus the Lord of your life? And I hate that. What, is that. what does it imply? If you can make Jesus the Lord of your life, what does that imply? That you're God. You're Lord over Him. The Bible says God has already made Jesus Lord. It's not an issue of making Him Lord. He's already your Lord. He's the Lord of every human being. Atheist, agnostic, Hindu, Buddhist, etc., etc., etc. Jesus is Lord. The issue is submitting by faith to the Lordship that He already exercises over you. That's the issue. What does Romans 10 say? We, we know the Romans road, don't we? Romans chapter 10. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. And we'll be saved, right? Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. Even there, intrinsic in that very passage, which is used by a lot of people who deny the necessity of preaching the Lordship of Christ, even that verse affirms that for people to be saved, they must acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. And to acknowledge just intellectually and verbally the Lordship of Christ while living in rebellion against Him is hypocrisy. Right? Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Matthew 7, everyone, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Right? If you are saved by grace, you have recognized and yielded to the Lordship of Christ. And that will be evident in the way you live your life. So Romans 10, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. There's another one, Philippians 2. Philippians 2. You can go there for a minute. We'll wrap this up. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. A very glorious Christological passage here. In fact, many scholars think that this was a a hymn from the early church. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, Jesus is God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. As God, as the second person of the Trinity, He possesses full rights to equality with the Father, and He didn't utilize that. He didn't hang on to that. He said, I'm willing to lay aside my rights 
not his deity. He never ceased to be God, right? But he laid aside the rights that were his to become a man. Verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those that are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what we tell the unbeliever. Friend, you will one day bow your day to Christ. There will be no atheists in the afterlife. There will be no Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims in the afterlife. Everyone will be a professing Christian then because everyone will acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus. Some people do that in this life out of the grace God gives them and they believe and they're saved. And they enter glory hereafter. Others do it on that final day when Christ will break their kneecaps and dash them to pieces. Then they'll confess Him as Lord and they'll be cast into hell. That's what we tell them. We're not selling a puny Jesus, but a mighty Savior who is Lord of all. Any thoughts on that so far? So His perfect life satisfied the law. His perfect death satisfied God's wrath. His resurrection confirms His deity. Exaltation confirms His Lordship. One more. His second coming culminates history. Go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Starting in verse 31. We'll actually back up to verse 30. Matthew 25, verse 30. Jesus speaking says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Verse 31. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And then He goes on and says this. Verse... I might have the wrong verses here. Oh, I'm in in Matthew. Oh, I'm in Matthew 24. Forgive me. Matthew 25. There's the confusion. Verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man... Y'all are all all looking like, what is he talking about? Verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the people of God will be gathered into His kingdom. Then go down to verse 41. Then He will also say to those on His left, Depart from Me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And then down to verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's what's going to happen. Christ is going to come. He's going to gather the nations before Him. Every knee will bow. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, giving an account for all we've ever said, think, thought, or done. And on that day, there's two options. Purgatory is not it. Heaven, hell. 
in the gracious presence of God forever or in the wrathful presence of God forever. There is no other alternative. There is no in-between. So we need to tell the unbeliever that Christ is coming. And you know what the problem is? Many people think, well, that's 5,000 years. I mean, who knows how much longer we have for that? And that may be true, right? Paul Archer rightly points out this reality. That that's true. Jesus might not come for 1,000 years, 2,000 years. I don't know. But in the next 60 to 100 years, either you're going to Him or He's coming to you. Right? Everyone's going to face Him in a personal way of death. And then in a final way at His return. But Christ is coming. We will stand before Him. And there's heaven or hell. And the only way to be justified before God is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ who died for us, rose for us, lives for us, intercedes for us, and saves us sufficiently. So that's what we need to tell the unbeliever. Any final thoughts, questions, or comments on all of that? Next week we'll pick up with point four. We'll talk about response. Okay, We've talked about who God is, who you are, who Christ is, what Christ has done. Now here's what you need to do in response to receive salvation. And I'll go ahead and give it away. You need to repent and believe. Right? Turn from your sin, trust in Christ, and God will forgive you. And we'll talk more about that next week. And by the way, once we finish this uh, outline up, I am going to have at least one week where I give you some practical steps on how to do this. To take all of this stuff I'm giving you and give you a practical method by which you can take this, these truths and communicate them to the non-believer. Okay? And we'll talk about that. Alright, let's pray. Father, thank You for this time in Your Word. And we are astonished as we consider the glory of Jesus. We're thankful that He's not like the Jesus that is commonly portrayed in our culture. He's not this puny little beggar. He's a mighty Savior. He's not going to weep eternal tears of sorrow. He's going to see the fruit of His labor. He's going to see the fruit of His labor. Those for whom He died will be saved. Those who refuse to bow the knee will be crushed. And He will be glorified, both in the salvation of His people and in the condemnation of His enemies. And we're thankful that we have this kind of a message to preach, to tell the world about. And our hope and our prayer, Father, is that everyone would bow the knee to Christ, that everyone here this morning has done so, and that if there are any here this morning who have not yielded themselves to the Lordship of Jesus by faith, that today would be the day of salvation. Today's the day, Lord. Tomorrow's the devil's day. I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. I pray that anyone here who is unconverted would bow the knee and be saved. Thank You, Lord. Be with us as we worship this morning. And may it all be to your glory. Amen.